Amen. Good morning. It's so wonderful to be here together this morning and be able to see one another and be together and worship God in spirit and in truth. And we're so very glad to have all of you here with us in person and online. We're also very thankful to have all of our very many visitors that we have in person and online. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. And uh, we hope that we make you feel comfortable and feel at home and feel welcome. And we want you to know you're always welcome here. Thank you for being here with us. And if we can ever serve you, help you in any way, be sure to let us know. Of course, we want to say happy Mother's Day to, to all the mothers here. And I appreciate Brother Calloway praying about our moms and thanking God for our mothers this morning. We want to thank you for all that you do, all of the little things as well as the big things you do. Mothers never stop, do they? Mothers are special, and you don't get enough thanks, and we want you to know that we, we thank God for who you are and all that you do. And I have just a few quotes that I came across that I wanted to share that might be an encouragement to you on this special day that we think about mothers. Your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God might not be something you do, but someone you raise. I want to encourage you to think about that and remember that. Motherhood is a million little moments that God weaves together with grace, redemption, laughter, tears, and most of all, love. And that describes the mothers we have here. And finally, being a mom has made me so tired <laughs> and so happy. Those of you with the babies and the little ones, you can definitely understand. Maybe grandparents, too, <laughs> when you keep those kids. But we appreciate our mothers, and we're so thankful to God for our mothers here. The monks had a remote monastery deep in the woods, and the, this particular group of monks followed a rigid vow of silence. Their vow could only be broken once a year on Christmas by one monk. And that monk would speak only one sentence. One Christmas, Brother Thomas had his turn to speak. And he said, I love the delightful mashed potatoes we have every year with the Christmas roast. Then he sat down. Silence ensued for 365 days. The next Christmas, Brother Michael got his turn and said, I think the mashed potatoes are lumpy and I truly despise them. Once again, he sat down and silence ensued for 365 days. The following Christmas, Brother Paul rose and said, I am fed up with this constant bickering. <laughs> Disagreements happen, don't they? We disagree on things. We have different viewpoints on things. That's a normal part of life. And it's not unusual to even have disagreements in the church. Now, in the church are all disagreements about doctrinal, scriptural, salvation issues. 
No. In fact, most of the time, they're not about those things, are they? Most of the time, they're about the mashed potatoes, mashed potato kinds of things, aren't they? So how do we handle disagreements like that, that aren't salvation, doctrinal, scriptural issues? Well, as we continue in Romans, Romans 14 and then a little bit in 15 next week, is gonna, Paul's going to help us understand how to handle those things. And kind of like we said last week, some of it we might be okay with and some of it we might not like because we feel strongly about our opinions a lot of times, don't we? In fact, we feel so strongly about our opinions, we believe we're right. And so how do we handle these kinds of things? Let's look at the first nine verses here. Paul writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. So remember the makeup of this congregation in Rome. And he's talking to these Roman Christians who are made up of what? Both, Rome, both Jewish Christians, those who became Christians out of Judaism, and Gentile Christians. And so he's writing to both of them. And for a time being, the Jews had been uh, uh, expelled from Rome and had only recently been allowed back in. So for a time being, this church in Rome, this congregation, had been mostly all Gentile Christians, and the Jews were coming back in, and there was a, a readjustment as they got used to one another again, and their differences, and their different customs coming from different backgrounds, and Paul writes to them, and he says, don't argue about what? Opinions. That's what he said. It's generally thought that the strong Christians Paul's referring to are the Gentile Christians and the weak Christians are the Jewish Christians 
simply because the Jews observed different holy days and uh, washings and, and uh, food customs and things like that. Now, we can hardly imagine what it was like for these Jewish Christians who grew up, think about it, learning the law of Moses, faithfully practicing the law of Moses, all of the customs, all of the washings, all of the the sacrifices, all of the temple ceremony and rituals, everything about the law of Moses, they followed faithfully. The Sabbath, everything, they they were religious about it. And then when they become Christians, they learn that none of that is necessary anymore in their worship to God. Imagine that. Everything they knew was how they worship worship God as a Jew. And then they become a Christian and they are told, that's unnecessary anymore. That's not the way we do it anymore. It's different. It's not about all the customs and rituals. Now it's simply about faith in God, faith in Christ, worshiping God. You no longer have to wash on uh, in certain ways and do certain things. You no longer have to eat certain foods in certain ways. You no longer have to observe certain days. Uh, you no longer have to eat only certain meats. Now it's all okay. None of that matters anymore. A huge part of their faith was no longer necessary. And everything had changed for them in Jesus. So you want to talk about culture shock. This was extreme, absolute culture shock for these Jews who became Christians. Now, not all of them had a difficult time in that transition. Paul was a very religious Jew, wasn't he? When he became a Christian, he didn't seem to have any issues leaving that, those things behind. But some did, if not many, had a difficult time with that. And so Paul says, take it easy on these Christians, these weaker, as he calls them, Christians. Understand that you're dealing with things, uh, the things that you're dealing with are opinions, and don't quarrel over these in things, matters of indifference, these matters of opinion, these things that are not salvation issues. The key is that these were matters of opinions, not salvation, doctrinal, scriptural issues, but non-essentials. These were not matters that God had spoken about in his word. They were left up to discretion. He had not taught about it one way or another. And Paul, notice, didn't tell these Christians, uh, these Jewish Christians, these weaker Christians as he calls them, he did not tell them, you better stop doing those things. You better better grow up. Now, inherent in the body of Scripture is grow up, mature in our faith. So that's, that's a given. And ideally, over time, they would have matured because he called them weak and not strong, that they would have realized and and gotten to a point where they could leave those things behind. But he didn't tell them right here that they had to. In other words, if if this is a part that you're so of your faith that you're so convicted about, even though it it is from the days of being a Jewish religious worshiper of God, and, and it's not violating the new 
Testament covenant, then it's okay if you still feel convicted in your faith about observing the Sabbath day, for example, and, and about not eating a port, for example, and, and, and ceremonial washings, perhaps. He's saying that's okay if you feel that convicted in your worship to God and your devotion to God. That's not a problem. That's not a scriptural issue. So why did Paul say that they were weak? What made them weaker Christians? Because in their faith, they were not yet able to let go of some of these things from the Jewish religion. Whatever that might have been. And some might have had a lot and some maybe held on maybe just to perhaps the Sabbath day. Maybe it was not eating pork. Maybe it was one thing or a couple. Maybe some were wanting to hold on to a lot of things out of their honor and devotion to God. And, and so naturally they did need to mature in their faith, but Paul didn't insist upon it right here. And now the, the word quarrel, seven, several translations translate that first word there in verse 1 as quarrel. And the word there is referring to passing judgment, passing sentence on something or someone. And Paul's telling the stronger Christians, don't quarrel as if you're passing sentence, judgment on them in your arguing. And don't welcome them in so you can get them in a corner and tell them why you're right and why they're wrong. He says, don't do that. And in verses 3 and 4, he uses the phrase, pass judgment twice. Because he's saying that when you judge someone on something, he's talking about within the church, on something that's not a doctrinal issue, not a scriptural issue that God has spoken to, he's saying that you are putting yourself in the seat of God as judge to judge what is right or wrong, yet God has not done so on that subject. Does that make sense? And so you are judging yourself as right and them as wrong. And in verse 4 he says, look, they've got to stand before the judgment seat of God. Just like you, everybody will answer to God for your your everything done in your body, for your beliefs, for your faith, for everything about your life, you're going to stand before God. So they'll stand before God, and in other words, you better think this through and know what you're talking about, he's telling them, because all of us will answer to God. In verse 5, we see that some who are, like we said, likely the Jewish Christians, still observe some, some days as special, while others... Presumably the Gentile Christians treated every day the same. Well, we recently commented on that when we, uh, on, on Easter Sunday. We said, hey, we recognize and celebrate and praise and, and honor Jesus and the resurrection and birth, resurrection every day. We don't need a holiday on a calendar to tell us to do that. See, we say that on Christmas and Easter. Why? To remind us we don't have to have a, a, a special day. But does that make a special day wrong? No. And I think you go too far to, to, say, to resist any reference to. Why? Because it's an opportunity that many in the world recognize. Why would you resist the opportunity to get uh, in, in, in blowing in the direction of a strong wind and take advantage of that opportunity. However, some may feel very convicted about that. 
And guess what? The Bible doesn't speak to that. So here's what he says in verse 5. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. You better think this through. This isn't just some willy-nilly belief or thought or thing on a whim. You better think through your convictions and your beliefs and know what you believe and why. And it should be founded on Scripture. And he's saying they're weaker Christians because it's not founded on New Testament teachings. But their faith is sincere and they're not violating Scripture and they're not doing anything wrong. And in verse 6, Paul says that the one who observes a special day and abstains from certain foods does so in honor of God, just like the one who doesn't care about that, and they're sincere in their worship to God as well. Now, verses 10 through 23, let's read that quickly. Paul asks, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide not to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, whoever thus, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eat, the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So Paul again emphasizes that we will stand before the judgment seat of God for our beliefs, for our convictions, for our worship, all of that. And he's saying that it matters, uh, those things. But when it's something that is God is indifferent on, that he has not spoken to one way or another, then we are not to pass judgment as if we are God on one another on those matters. And then Paul adds something. He says, don't put a what? Stumbling block in someone else's way, in the way of your brother or sister. That stumbling block is causing your weaker brother or sister to stumble in their faith in their devotion to God because you're insistent that you're right and they're wrong and you're going to show them. That's what he's saying. You, you, you don't care. You have no sensitivity to their convictions in faith and you're not sensitive to the fact that they're the weaker brother or sister. Then why are you 
passing judgment on them and enforcing your beliefs on them when it's something that doesn't matter. And Paul said, Christ died for that person too. You're violating him. So don't let your good, your freedom, your strength be spoken of as evil because you're causing your weaker brother or sister to stumble in verse 16. And Paul even said in verse 14, he said, hey, I'm in the stronger group because I realize nothing's unclean to eat and special days aren't mean, meaningful. That, that, that doesn't exist anymore. That's no more uh, since Christ came and under his new covenant. He was in the strong group, but even as a Jewish Christian, he had faithfully observed the law of Moses. He didn't have an issue with this, but he understood that some did as they became Christians and as they grew in their faith. And Paul says, pursue peace. Don't divide. Don't destroy what God is doing in someone else just because they're not where you are. Don't destroy their weaker, younger faith just to have your way. That's what the problem is is I got to be right and let everybody know I'm right and show everybody I'm right instead of love for that younger, weaker Christian who's growing and maturing and developing. And what's the main reason we're not supposed to quarrel and pass judgment and do all this on these disputable matters? He tells us in verse number 17. It's what the kingdom is about. Verse 17, look at verse 17. Because those disputable matters, those matters of opinions, those matters that, that don't matter, that are not salvation issues, they're not scriptural issues, that's not what the kingdom is about. He says if you're focused on that and you're quarreling about that, you are not focused on kingdom business. You're not doing the work of the Lord. You're not focused on the things you're supposed to be focused on. You're over here on things that don't matter. And he says the kingdom is about uh, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And that's what should be reflected in your church, he says to the church in Rome. That's what we're to be about. And the strong Christians should understand that and make sure that's what we're focused on, not fussing over opinions. But you know, Romans chapter 14 has been used before by people who want to block efforts of the church, something the church is setting out to do. Maybe it's small, maybe it's big, but they don't like it. It wasn't their idea. It was different than what they thought it should be. It's not what they would do. And so they claim that offends me. In order to bring the church to a halt to not do the work of the Lord, that, that offends me. Well, what? Door knocking offends you? Doing something for the community to let the community know we care about them? I'm trying to make modern application so that we can make positive contact, that, that, that offends you. That's what Paul's saying. And so it's been used wrongly, not, not in a sound way, to say that offends me, therefore the production should stop. Well, if that's the case, we'd never do anything because all we got to do is say I'm offended. 
Is that what Paul is teaching in this text? That if I don't like something, I can just wave the offended flag? That's not what Paul's teaching. Because remember, what's he talking about? He's talking about matters of sincere conviction in our faith and the like the Jews who became Christians who in their sincere devotion to God, trying their best to honor God, feel that it's right to still observe certain things such as the Sabbath, for example. And you're going to wave the flag of you, weaker, newer Christian, still think you have to observe the Sabbath? And I know we don't see... That's, see, when you say you're offended, you're putting yourself in the weaker category when that's supposed to be the Christian who's still growing, who's still learning, who's still developing and maturing, and they're not doing anything wrong. And Paul's saying, you may not like it that they still uh, want to observe the Sabbath, for example, or not eat pork, for example. Why are you worried about that? That has nothing to do with you. You need to be about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's saying. Had the Gentiles, Gentile Christians carried on with no sensitivity towards some of the, their Jewish brothers and sisters and even lectured them about their weaknesses and judged them and tell them how they were so wrong, they would have been putting that stumbling block in their path because that would have tripped them up because in their convictions, they still needed to do those things. And they weren't doing anything that violated New Testament scripture. So the Jewish Christians might need to observe a special diet or special days. It didn't violate anybody's faith, even though they were weaker. It was sincere conviction to God. And Paul's saying, leave it alone and get to work and do the work you're supposed to do in the church. Righteousness, joy, and peace. For someone to throw around that something offends them so that we can't do it is not at all what the Bible is teaching here. Now, modern day applications are pretty difficult because oftentimes modern day applications are not equivalent to the context of Romans 14. So to think about a modern day application, it's got to be equivalent to Romans 14. Does that make sense? So it can't be anything you come up with. It can't obviously be something that violates the New Testament because then it's not a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of indifference. It's a matter, it is a scriptural, doctrinal, biblical issue that God has spoken on. And so you have to make sure it's an equivalent comparison. And so that's hard because we're not coming out of Judaism. But perhaps I think Thinking about Easter, Christmas, as I mentioned, it might be like a fall festival and someone has a, has a sincere, they, they've thought about this, they've, they've given much prayer and consideration to this. They, they have, their conviction is, is I don't, we're, we're not going to show up and, and, and be in costumes. And guess what? That's Okay. And, and sometimes they have a good point because we all know that can get carried away, right? And, and so uh, another example might be uh, dress. Men having to wear coat and tie. Women having to wear dresses. Uh, Joyce, years ago, I think even before we had kids, had uh, 
a woman who was our friend, older woman, uh, a godly woman. But to her, wearing dresses every time we met, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, that, that was what was right. And Joyce, I don't know if it was jeans or just pants, but she was dressed nice, but it wasn't a dress one time. And this wonderful sister, and she is, uh, uh, let her know, hey, according to your faith, you need, to, you need to consider this because this is what's right, essentially. Now, for her, that's what she believed because she was older, and that's the way she grew up, and that's okay. And that, that's, there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, I think that's proper, that we ought to wear dresses to church every time we're together. Nothing in the world wrong with that. But the Bible didn't say that she couldn't wear pants as long as she's dressing modestly and appropriately, right? So that's an example. Neither one should have had a problem and didn't with one another. Okay, King James only. Any of y'all remember that one? King James only. That's the only one you're supposed to read, right? Some people still believe that. I'm I'm telling you, don't pull out something else because you ain't right with God if you're reading another translation. Uh, What about... Dominoes or card games. I remember hearing about that when I was growing up. Some people don't believe you ought to play dominoes or cards. And if you do, you're in trouble. Y'all remember that? I don't hear that really nowadays, but some people had a sincere conviction about that. Not supporting children's homes. Uh, One Cuppers, I've read a very good article making a case for one cup. If that's their conviction... Have fun. Have at it. Go for it. Okay? And I can't say that they're wrong. Uh, And and it shouldn't be a fellowship issue is what I'm saying. Now, one of the biggest of modern history. (laughs) I almost don't even want to bring it up. But you know what it is, right? Masks and vaccines, right? Oh, man. Why did you bring that? I thought we were done with that. Masks and vaccines divided us. It was unbelievable. I'm I'm talking about just across the world, didn't it? In the church, out of the church. Somebody remind me what book, chapter, verse that's in about masks and vaccines. Can somebody, somebody help me remember? It's not in, it's not in there. Is it not in there? Self-alonians, that's right. I need to go get that copy. Self-alonians. But boy, that challenged us, didn't it? There was great division in some cases over that subject alone. Is it an important subject? Absolutely. Should it have been taken seriously? Absolutely. You bet. I did a funeral for a husband and wife who died within a week of one another. They were both together when I did their, I, I did both of them at the same time. You've all seen different effects. We all have different opinions. Some of us had it and never knew we had it. Some people passed away. And even to say that, Yeah, but did you know? And I get it. I know. I understand. You don't have to convince me of any of that. I know. 
it, my point in bringing that up is not to debate either side, but to highlight what a divisive subject that was. And Paul tells us, why are you fussing and arguing and quarreling and dividing and destroying one another over something God didn't write about in the New Testament. Now, do decisions have to be made? Absolutely. Yes, real decisions have to be made. Just like in the Jewish, in the Roman church, decisions had to be made on how are we going to interact, what are we going to do about this and that. There was even the Jerusalem council at one point in the book of Acts to deal with, discuss, and hash through some subjects. But at some point, you have to land somewhere, and that's why God gave us elders. And guess what? You don't have to like every decision that's made, and you don't have to agree with every decision that's made. But Paul tells us, the Bible tells us, quit fussing and arguing and dividing and destroying. And what are we supposed to do? Look at this next slide. Don't quarrel, don't judge, don't destroy, but do what? Paul says make peace and build up. And guess what? Get to work and do the job the church is supposed to do. And look how Satan used that modern-day issue. Can, look, I'm telling you, I brought this up because I wanted to highlight how serious of an issue it was for them in the Roman church. Just as serious as you took this issue, and that's okay. And we all did, and we all had opinions, and we've all thought through it, okay? We're going to land in different places. I get it. But in the same way they dealt with it at the same level, if not more, okay? Because for them, it was deeply religious. And I know for many of us, this was as well. I hope I'm coming across by not saying, not like I'm picking on anybody. I'm trying to show us the word of God and to highlight something that's hopefully equivalent to the severity of what they dealt with then to say, and Paul tells us this, God tells us in his word now that this is how we're supposed to be. We're supposed to not divide over opinions, but to love one another. Some are going to be weaker. Some are going to be stronger. We're going to land on different places on things that, guess what, don't matter. Scripturally, they may matter in other ways, but according to Scripture, the Scripture does not direct us one way or another. That's what I'm trying to say. And so what should we do? Be united Love one another, be long-suffering, and get to be about the work of the church. Why? Because in verse 17, here's what we see. In verse 17, Paul reminds us we're to be focused on the kingdom of God, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to be about our Father's business. Are you focused on the kingdom of God? Is that what your focus has been on? I want to encourage you, let's be united in what the kingdom of God is about. 
And let's do the Lord's business in this community. If we can encourage you in any way, help you, pray for you. Maybe you're ready to put on Christ in baptism. We want you to know whatever your need is. We're always here for you. If we can help you this morning, we invite you to come as we stand.